Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that human DNA has been found in the bones of a Neanderthal woman, which puts cross-mating back to at least 110,000 years ago. And that genetic mixing left its mark in the DNA of a Siberian Neanderthal. And it's interesting because we know that many humans today carry little bits of Neanderthal DNA. And I'm very pleased to tell you that I have the Neanderthal gene for less back hair, which is something that I've enjoyed for my entire life. And however, this is the first time that human DNA has been found embedded in Neanderthal's genes. And what this finding means is that, well, sorry, we have to reevaluate all of our scientific theories on the relationship between humans and Neanderthals. And we've had this long string of discoveries that tell us that humans are probably way older than we thought we were, and that history is way more interesting than what we told ourselves based on very limited data. But now that we can go in and look at DNA, like, wow, <laughs> uh, the world is really interesting, we'll put it that way. And before we get into the show today, you might not know that we make Bulletproof performance kits. So if you're new to Bulletproof and just looking to try some foundation products or you want to upgrade a specific area of your performance, there are a dozen specialized kits on Bulletproof.com. So if you don't want to have to decide what's the right thing for me, we'll sort of tell you if you want this goal, get this set of things. And that's there just to save you time and to make it easier to make a decision. And I can tell you that when you go Bulletproof, you're going to feel a difference. And the whole point here is I make products that have something you can feel in them. It's about how you feel when you do it. It's not about, oh, I believe if I do this, I'm probably going to be better 10 years from now. Yeah, you probably will, but you, you got to feel it right now. So go to bulletproof.com, check out the performance kits. They're awesome. All right. I'm excited about today's episode for a couple of reasons. One, I'm sitting here in Hawaii doing the interview. And the second reason is that it's a live interview where I get to be in the same room, which is always more fun and more energizing. And today's guest is a guy who wrote a really cool book, uh, one that both my wife, Dr. Lana, and I really enjoyed. And I've gotten to know him at a few different conferences. And it's the first time I've really sat down to pick his brain. He's known as the mindfulness guru to billionaires, at least according to an article in Inc. magazine. And he spent a lot of time over the last 20 years working with celebrities, very, very successful entrepreneurs, and, and very, very wealthy people, transforming them and doing something he calls uncoaching, where he doesn't really go deep and dig into why they do what they do, what's their mission, and how to achieve it at a, a level that's just a, a different level of integrity and authenticity. And I certainly know some of the people that he's uh, that he's worked with, and just when you, when you come across him, he comes across as this really deep, uh, profound guy who's, who's had an incredible path. So we're going to talk about that today on the show, and he's going to offer some knowledge for you as well. And his name is Coot Blackson. His book is called You Are the One. Coot, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Dave. Now, you have such a, a crazy background. You were born in Ghana in West Africa, but your mom was Japanese, and you're actually fluent in Japanese, right? I'm pretty fluent in Japanese. I could I could live there, work there. I don't know if I could give a lecture there, but I, I could pretty much do my fair share. Now, I heard through the grapevine that when you speak Japanese, you sound a little bit like a Japanese mom. Is that true? I sound like a Japanese mom? Yeah. Um, me personally? Yeah. Uh, who, who said that? <laughs> I'm going to find that person, Dave. It, it, and I'm going to torture them Japanese style. He's a fluent Japanese person. Yeah, I know, I know who you're thinking about. And I'm going to find him. Uh, you know, I think because oh, I grew up speaking Japanese with my mother. Exactly. And, and so I sound like kind of my mother, you know. And, it's, and people are surprised because they see this sort of brown-ish guy. And they're like, but you sound really Japanese. So... Yeah, I think it's really cool because you can surprise people. Yeah. Uh, my, my wife does that quite a lot. You know, she speaks Swedish, but it's such a small language. No one thinks so people are talking openly, saying things that they don't think right. she can understand. So it, it's kind of funny because you must be able to do that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so you started out in West Africa, which is, you know, a place not a lot of people that I know are from. And how did you end up becoming a mindfulness guru for these incredible successful people? Like walk me through your path sure. and what gets you going. Sure. You know, from a very young age, I remember being age five, age six, I always felt a, 
a really deep calling to serve humanity. I remember being five years old, feeling like I just had this burning desire to help people. It was just, it was just inside of me. I didn't know exactly what that would look like. Uh, but one of my first memories was around six, seven, uh, being a chubby kid in Ghana, West Africa, and literally seeing a crippled woman crawling on the floor. And I was lost in the crowd, and she was crawling on the floor, hands mangled, legs mangled, and she was just making her way, dust everywhere, thousands of people. She picks up the sand that this man walks on, wipes it on her face, and stands up. You know, a miracle, so to speak. Wow. And so week after week, I grew up seeing blind people see, deaf people hear. The same man who sand she picked up, he would, uh, he would literally look at a woman in a wheelchair and say, why are you in this wheelchair? Stand up, you are not sick, stand up. Or he'd put his hands on, on her eyes and say, see. You know, or, or a woman would come in with crutches. I mean, this is stuff I saw with my own eyes like, personally. Like miracle workers. Not on, t not on television. A woman would come in with crutches and he would say, throw your crutches away. And she would say, but I, but I can't. He would say, do you believe? Well, yes, if you believe, why do you have the crutches? And she would throw them away and she would start running around. This was my father. And so my father... <laughs> Good God, okay. <laughs> my father had 300 churches in Ghana, West Africa. He had a huge church in London, about 5,000 people. Uh, kind of metaphysical, spiritual, kind of like in, in, in LA, there's Michael Beckwith's church. Uh, right. thought, it was that sort of spiritual philosophy. So I grew up in this, you could say, environment where... You know, I mean, all these miracles were happening, but I didn't think anything was unusual about it. This <laughs> They're was, kind of boring. because This the, was normal. I mean, <laughs> I would go to school and I would tell people about the stuff that happened and people would think I, would, I was totally nuts. My teacher, one day thought I was crazy, came to my father's church, saw this stuff happening and just couldn't believe it. And so this is the realm I grew up in. You know, this, this sort of, I don't know, the, the, everything was possible. And uh, age eight, I started speaking in my father's churches. Uh, one, one Sunday was, uh, you know, it wasn't my interest to, to go to church because church was like six hours. <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to play soccer. But one day my father just threw me in front of the audience and said, speak. And I, I, you could say my speaking career started at age eight when just I was thrown up on stage and just words started coming out, my out of my mouth. And this just unfolded. And that was the beginning. But I became very obsessed with questions like who am I and why am I here and what's the purpose of life and I looked at people who seem to have, have everything and they were miserable people who had nothing they seemed to be happy in Ghana West Africa and so this became my quest I started reading books books from you know the eastern mystics the the Krishnamurtis the Oshos the Maharishi Mesh Yogis to the western folks the the, the wind dyes of the world the Chopras the Robins the the Dan Millmans all these folks and and this became my obsession became my life and so this was my path but you know, 14, I was ordained as a minister in my father's church. And so one Sunday, my father announces to his congregation, my son is taking over my ministry. And did you know that was happening? You know, my father was not the most communicative <laughs> guy. So there was no conversation. And it was just announced. And I looked at my father, I looked at my mother, and I thought, what the hell is going on? You know, my, my I saw my entire life was being carved out for me, planned out by someone else, by my father, and it was like my life flashed in front of me. Deep down in that moment, I had a gut feeling and a knowing that this was not my path. I knew intuitively it was a sense it wasn't my path. But honestly, I was too, I was too afraid. To, well, you're 14. I was 14. <laughs> I was too afraid to, to tell my father. I was too afraid to have the conversation. I was afraid of being outcast. I was afraid of uh, being abandoned, being alone, losing sure. his love. And so I went along with it, you know, and I thought, well, it's kind of in the zone of helping people. And, and, uh, and I started speaking in my father's churches and I became known as the, the successor, as the guy with, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people who had their hopes and dreams pinned on uh, me. Could was, you do the miracle healing stand up kind of thing? Here, here's what I'll say. Um, huh. One day I was probably 12 and my father <laughs> announces to the congregation next Sunday, my son is going to be doing a healing service. And I'm thinking, Dave, I'm thinking, I am? Talk about some pressure on a 12-year-old. But I'm thinking, I am? Everyone's excited. So he says, bring all of your sick people. And I'm thinking, I'm think in my mind, I'm thinking, oh my God. Like no pressure. Because my father and I, we've, it's not like he's mentored me. And he, he just, he kind of throws you into the fire. And wow. so next Sunday, usually there's like four, four, five thousand 5,000 people. There's like 7,000 people in church. Everyone's brought their sick people, their sick family. And my, my father says, now it's time for the healing service. And all I remember, because we didn't speak, was the time, the time came 
And I just thought, I'm just going to do what my father does, which is he put, puts his hands on people and just blesses them. And something happened. I went into no mind. There was yeah. a state of going into no mind, no thinking. You could say a space of total uh, surrender. Like, like samadhi sort of a thing? I don't know what, what to label it, but it was okay. a space of like realizing, okay, I can't do this, so I'm just going to surrender myself and allow whatever that energy is to come through. And I put my hand on the first person, the first person dropped to the floor. And, and then I, I don't remember anything for the next like hour and a half. Wow. Stuff happened. And people tell me stuff happened and healings happened. And so I wouldn't call myself like a healer, but I just remember yeah, things. that's not what you do now. No, yeah. things happened and it was profound. It was really, really profound. I, you know, I'd often ask, people often ask, well, how do healings happen? Years later, when I was in my 20s, I'd, ask, I'd have conversations with my father and I'd ask him, how do you heal? You know, there's all this talk in the new age movement about chakras and energy and moving energy and all this stuff and how complex it can get. I asked him, how do you heal? And he said, I don't really know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? You, you are known as the miracle worker, presidents, kings. I mean, influential people, heads of state from all over Africa come to you and millions of people have been healed by you. How do you do it? He goes, I don't know. All I know is I get myself. He said, all I know is I don't do the healing. Life does the healing. God does the healing. The divine does the healing. The innate intelligence does the healing. All I do is I show up and I get myself out of the way and I allow the energy to move. And that has been, honestly, Dave, a huge principle for my life, not just like as a, in, yeah. in terms of healing, but as a way of living, you know, just showing up and saying, okay, universe, let the energy unfold. And so that's been huge for me. Sort of a, a stop trying, start allowing kind yeah. of a perspective. Yeah. It, it seems to drive success. Um, I was talking with Jack Henfield in a recent interview, similar line of thing. The, yeah. the less effort you put into it, sometimes yeah. things unfold the way they want to. So yeah. that's how you were able to, to do the healing, even though you were in an altered state, you don't remember yeah, it. Yeah, just, 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 I can't say I did it. So I always tell people, yeah. there is no healer. And I love it, like in, in this sort of modern day spiritual personal growth with it, where so many people, people have this ego about yeah. like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm this amazing healer. I did this healing. And I, and I feel, feel like there is no healer. There is healing that unfolds, but it's the innate intelligence that does it. So Now, when you're 12 or 14, yeah. that's the time of ego emergence. Yes. Uh, that, that's where like, we're forming the final <laughs> stages of, of our ego. Yeah. Uh, and the way I'm talking about this ego is the, the part of you that's yeah. really worried about keeping your, your meat alive. Yeah. You know, animals have that equivalent responsiveness. You know, I need food. I need you know, reproduction. I need to not get eaten by a tiger. And, and then the, the final stages are those teenage things. And the spiritual ego is the hardest ego to deal with. Look at me, I'm the best spiritual master of all. And, and like that's a very tricky one, even for some of the personal development people that were hanging out with yeah. us this weekend. So how did you avoid falling down into that trap? Or like, look at me, you know, I'm 14, I'm you know, in front of hundreds of thousands of people. Like, how did you not become like a, a mini celebrity, <laughs> like the LA, yeah. LA crowd of things? Or did you? You know, I, I th honestly, I think because I was young, yeah. And because I was 14, and because it was pre-social media, and pre-Instagram, and pre-Facebook, and pre-YouTube, pre-any of those things, there was a purity, and there was an innocence that I had. And that wasn't like contaminated with like the sort of social media culture and selfies and look at me. And so, so the environment I grew up in wasn't like necessarily reinforcing this egoic tendency. And so... The entire context of what I grew up in was all about, honestly, service and devote. My parents were really devoted to God's work, devoted to being of service to humanity. So that's honestly, that's 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 all I that's all I knew. That's all I knew. And that is the the ocean that I really swam in. And, and so that was my path. It was a path of service, a path of serving humanity beyond yeah. myself. Does that have something to do with the culture in Ghana at the time? So sort of the, the West African culture goes back many, many yeah. thousands of years. Yeah. Do you think that was part of it? Yeah, I think the, the, the Ghanaian culture is very devoted to, to spirit, to God, spirit, conscious, whatever label you want mm -hmm. to put. But it's very devoted to that. So there's a great connection to, to God, to the divine, to source, to, to something beyond oneself. And so the culture itself is very selfless and service driven. And you know, honestly, my mother had a huge impact on my life in that she, I grew up watching her as a human being that was all about 
being selfless. You know, I asked my mother, I mean, it was a few years back, but I asked her, what's your greatest unfulfilled desire? What, what, what can I do for you? And this, this, this summarizes how I grew up, you know? And her life's goal, desire was to do the work of the infinite, do the work of God. And so I think I was blessed in a certain way to grow up with that, that uh, reference that wasn't like self-referencing, uh, self you know, that context that wasn't like always about fame and ego and, and, and selfingness. It was really outward focused to how can we be of true service to people? And that's, that's how I grew up, you know? And, and so when I was 14, uh, just to wrap up, uh, I was ordained. I knew that wasn't my path. Everyone was excited. All these expectations on me took me. I, I, there was an excruciating pain I felt because I knew that the, the, there was a misalignment between the truth I knew and what I was living. And uh, I read a book by a guy called Krishnamurti, J. Krishnamurti, mm, right. and I could really relate to his life and his path. And he was being groomed to take over the spiritual organization, and he left everything behind. Once I read his book, I knew, I knew what I had to do. But it took me four years to really uh, muster up the courage, Dave, to, to kind of have a conversation with my father. Uh, when I was about 17, I chose not to go to university, figured life had more to teach me. And uh, realized I had two paths. I could, I could take the expected path, which my father set out for me. Uh, and as I looked at that path, I realized I might be successful by everyone else's standards. I might achieve a level of success and fame or what have you. But if I didn't have myself, then what the hell do I have? And I felt like I was committing soul suicide if I just kept going down this path. And the pain of that was, was so intense for me. And then I looked yeah. at the other path, which was the unknown path, which was following my intuition, which was to leave the church, leave everything behind, go into the field of personal growth, which is what I wanted to go into. Uh, and then I started reading about people like Tony Robbins and Marianne and Deepak who didn't have churches. They were just like filling ballrooms and hotel rooms. And I thought, maybe there's another way. And so, uh, 17, I had a very intense conversation with my father. You know, I had to make peace with the fact that I was not going to have a relationship with him. Uh, in my heart, let him go. I had a conversation with him, told him I wasn't going to take over, and uh, left everything behind. And wow. we didn't speak for, that's the day I became a man, where I realized, mm. I realized I wasn't living my truth, you know, and the pain of, and really feeling the pain of that. And so, uh, I basically, Gave up my relationship with my father and uh, we didn't speak for two years. Uh, I was kind of in this vacuum. And one day I said, okay, universe, I've read all of these books, you know, I read hundreds of books at this time. And I said, if this stuff is real, this metaphysical, spiritual stuff is real, then you have to guide me. And literally within an hour, someone hands me a magazine called The Economist. <laughs> and I figured it must be for a reason. I look at the back of the magazine and it says, uh, the American government's giving away 55,000 green cards in the green card lottery. I felt chills in my body. And uh, I enter the, the green card lottery. Long story short, three months later, I won a green card in, in the lottery. That's when I knew that there was something beyond myself that was guiding my life. There was something that was beyond my mind that was unfolding my life. And, and my father would always say, when I'd worry about life and stress about life, he'd always say, why are you worrying about your life? Why are you so stressed about everything that's happening in your life? Did you bring yourself here? And I would say, well, what do you mean? He goes, did you bring yourself to this pla planet? And I said, well, no, I just kind of showed up here. You know? Right, right. He would say, if you didn't bring yourself here, then why are you worrying? Tr like, trust. And so uh, once I won that green card, I had a real sense of knowing that I was, something was happening. Did you have a sense of like less control and maybe even feeling a little unsafe? Like there's something guiding me, but I don't know what it is. And Look, it was, it was scary because yeah. I had no freaking clue where I was going. I just knew, when I was 14, I just knew that I, I needed to come to America. Wow. I just knew it because, I mean, what... California and Los Angeles because, you know, all the authors lived in <laughs> right, Los Angeles right. and California. But I just felt this knowing like, this is where I had to go. I didn't know what it was going to look like. I didn't know how things were going to unfold. I was naive enough at 17 and stupid enough to just not question so much. But it was scary. You know, it was really scary because I didn't know how it was going to unfold. So you literally showed up with two suitcases in L.A. One my green card. Showed up with two suitcases, $1,000, and I knew no one. Like, I mean, I knew zero people. 
Now I think think back and go, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> yeah. But I just showed up and like LAX told the taxi guy, take me somewhere safe and cheap where I can stay for like a few weeks. I had no idea what the hell I was doing. Like zero, no talk about plan, no plan, no strategy, just following the wave. So where did he take you? He takes me to a place called Venice Beach Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even a motel or a hotel. It's a hotel. It's on like a little strip of Windwood Avenue on Venice. Yeah. I take my bags. I'm so excited. But the reality hit me when, when I was alone and walked around Venice Beach, which is a little crazy. Like oh, yeah. 20 years ago was like crazy. And I just cried my eyes out thinking, what the hell am I doing? I'm in this strange country. I know no one. What am I doing? And I just cried for a few days and then got myself together, ended up moving like a tiny apartment downtown and just hustled, man, hustled. It was, it was, it was a very difficult, challenging time. But, you know, I remember sitting in my apartment that was, I mean, it was the size of this little area. I mean, tiny, right? right? With a mattress that I literally dragged off of the, the pavement that someone threw out. Wow. That's all I had. No plan. And I remember being terrified and scared, but I felt this profound peace. This peace of knowing that I was not compromising myself. This peace of knowing that I have nothing, but I have my own truth. You know, I have my own, like if I died tomorrow, if I failed, I was failing following my truth, not living someone else's life. You know, right. And I realized I was not living someone else's life. So I always tell people, you can't be happy living someone else's life. I don't care how much money you have, how much, what you've achieved in the world, how many people love you. If you're not living your own truth, you have nothing. That's not real success. And so uh, I think one of the things that keeps us stuck um, are actually all the ways that we lie to ourselves. Right. All the ways that we bullshit ourselves, don't tell the truth to ourselves. I think that's really one thing that keeps us stuck. So, I mean, I'd ask everyone maybe listening to this conversation to maybe take self-inventory and ask themselves, what lies am I telling myself? You know, and sometimes we play this game of, I don't know. So, What are the biggest lies that your, your, your coaching clients, these, these billionaires, these you know, $100 million entrepreneurs, what are the wow. biggest lies that you've heard about? Interesting. Um, I think there's various lies. Uh, one of them, you know, some simple lies like, I'm not enough as I am. You know, it's always, I think, a lie that I think we can all relate to, whether you're a billionaire or whether you're a celebrity or whether you're a regular person, the sense of like, if you know who I am, you won't love me. And so who I am is, is not worthy. Who I am is not enough. And I think sometimes that unworthiness or that feeling of, you know, the unmet need from childhood and feeling unloved, uh, can sometimes drive us to achieve, to maybe compensate for right. what we didn't, what we weren't, and to maybe try and prove that we are worthy. You know, and but the only thing is, when you're driven by that that sort sort of unworthiness feeling, no matter what you achieve, it's never enough. You'll never be happy. It's it's, it's endless, endless. And so I have many clients who, I mean, you know, they've achieved everything and they're still miserable. And I think it's it, it's even more difficult. Because, or even more challenging, or you're even more screwed, because now that you've achieved everything that you thought was going to make you happy, and you're still not happy, it's even more painful. And so uh, I think this, so this lie of I'm not worthy as I am, or this sense of like, you know, it's not, like what I need isn't inside of me, it's, it's outside of me, you know? And so this constant seek, which facilitates a constant seeking outside of us. And so I think that's one of the biggest lies, you're not enough. And I think media, advertising, is constantly distracting us, you know, has this investment of distracting us from uh, and disconnecting us from who we really are. Because I think if we can get distracted, then we can get disconnected and we can get sold uh, a whole bunch of lies, uh, like the sense of, well, you're not enough, but if you just, I don't know, wear this underwear or if you just, <laughs> you know, wear these shoes or drive this car, then you'll finally be enough. And so I think uh, we have to remember and reconnect, you know, with, with the truth. It, it sounds great to hear that. Right, putting that in action. If if you're sitting here listening to the show, you're you're sitting in traffic on your way to yeah. your job. You don't really like your job, right? You're barely going to make rent this month, or you know wherever you are in the whole scheme of things, right? And saying, okay, how do I make that actionable? Like, okay, so yeah, maybe I'm telling myself some lies. I don't know what they are, right? Like, like how do we translate this into something that that you can use? You know, I always I always tell people start with asking yourself and looking at the lies you're telling yourself. Like for real, because we're constantly lying to ourselves. Is there, is there a process for that, well, a lie just, detector? Just, like, just, really, just take a moment, sit, I think deep down, 
we know the truth. Mm -hmm. Dave, we freaking, we know the truth. We play this game of confusion, like, I don't really know. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm confused when deep down we do have an inkling. We do have a, a, a knowing and a sense. So I think the willingness, it takes courage. Yeah. It takes a lot of courage it because does. I think we're often afraid if I tell the truth to myself that we, we have a sense, you know. If I tell the truth to myself, then what will happen? You know, what, what are the consequences? If I tell the truth that I'm not really happy in this relationship or this not quite aligned or I'm, or I'm in this job that isn't, really in alignment with my integrity then shit how am i going to how am i going to pay 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 rent and so many times i think we suppress the truth in order to keep our life together which then kind of ends up making us more miserable in the long run and so i think the the courage to even if you don't take immediate action the courage to actually say okay this is what i really feel this is the truth of what i really feel and own it and feel it and actually be willing to feel the pain, to feel the pain. Because many right. times we feel like something's off. We feel the sense of this is not in alignment. And we, because we don't want to deal with the consequences, we'll distract ourselves. You know, we'll shop it away, we'll work it away, we'll Facebook it away, social media it away. And we don't want to deal with it. And so I think the willingness to sit still and just own the truth of what we feel and feel it, to feel what it, what are the lies I'm telling myself? What am I pretending to not know? And what is it costing me? And to feel the pain of like, what is it costing me? And even if you don't take action, I think the truth, owning the truth begins a process inside. That, that, uh, it's like the fire of truth begins to burn inside. Because now if you're owning it, at least you, you, you know what the truth is. And, you, and you, you're no longer bullshitting yourself about what you feel. I went through something like that um, back when... Uh, I'd been working in Silicon Valley, had a, a very successful career, and it was exciting as all hell. Like we were building the internet, like making nice. things scale, and like I, I was at ground zero for that, and it was the most exciting thing I could think of doing. Right. But after uh, 10 or 15 years of that, I'm like, you know what, making a slightly faster router or you know a slightly better server somewhere, it just isn't world changing, and isn't exciting, and, and yeah. I, I, just, I lost the, the luster for it. But I'm making, a, a really nice salary. You know, I built a career, built a network. You know, all, all the things you do when you're an expert in a field. Uh, and I remember when I I decided, you know, I'm actually gonna gonna leave this and this little blog I started to share all this knowledge. You know, I, I think it can probably be a company, right? But I didn't start it to that. I didn't build the list the way you're supposed. I didn't do all the stuff you're supposed to because it wasn't supposed to be a right, business like that. Right. It was just knowledge sharing. Uh, so I, I remember just sitting down and, and facing that. And my wife's like, we have two young kids, you know, like, like this is, we just moved to a new country. Like, like this is the worst possible timing. <laughs> like, like maybe you should do it. And, and my truth then was like, you know, I'm, I, I just don't care as much about this stuff I used to. Yeah. And if I don't take this opportunity to help people in this way, like I'm just not going to be happy. Yeah. And it was, it was a rough conversation, but I did do that process you're talking about yeah. to just, you know, know my truth and feel the pain. And the pain is like, I, I just, I don't have a passion for this anymore, even though it was one time the most important thing I could think of to do. Yeah. And, you know, I, I did, you know, kind of step off and say, I'm going to sort of throw away my, uh, you know, my 20 years of building a career. Because once you're out of tech for a few years, you're, you're stale, right? Uh, with no idea whether it was going to be new, you know, lucrative or not, whether it was going to do it. But I did feel that same, yeah. that same thing you're talking about. But I did that when I was, you know, 40 or something. Yeah. You did that when you were 14. Yeah. So were you just born that way? Was I born that way? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, this is not normal for people to do this look, at a young I, age I, like I, you. I, I w look, I, I was a little odd. Okay. But I, it wasn't like, I mean, I was terrified. Okay. Don't get me wrong. I, I was, my greatest fear at 14 was, was losing the love yeah. and the approval of my father who yeah. I wasn't close to. But he was like my hero. Right. I mean, he was like this huge, larger than life guy who all I wanted was his love at that time. And so the thought of not having that was like, it was like death. Right. Like death. And so it was terrifying. But I knew the truth. I knew it. When I, when I was 14, going through in front of 5,000 people, going through my ministerial ordination ceremony, there was a pain in my heart because I knew that this was not my path. 
it was his vision for my life. And, and, and I was not happy. I, I, it, there was a pain, I mean, I didn't cry, but inside I was crying. Right. And I felt that. And so it's not like I was just born like, oh, without fear. There was fear. There, there was terror of what is going to happen to my life. Um, and it took me four years to kind of muster up the courage. But I just knew when I felt the pain of living the rest of my life as a lie, when I felt the pain of, of what that would mean for the rest of my life, I couldn't do it. It was too painful. So, so not living in integrity is, is a gnawing pain that the people feel. And, and as you came to LA and you started yeah. building your, your career and your mission, uh, helping people, and you eventually connected with people where you know, you're, you're helping people who can pretty much buy whatever they want, yeah. right? They, they've already achieved that level. How many of them were running off that same uh, kind, of, kind of pain that you've been running off of where I'm, I'm succeeding because I'm seeking approval from my parents still, or I'm, yeah. I'm living the life someone else set out for me? Yeah, I, I think uh, I would say most of them. To be honest, I think many times we we have an idea of what we want or we set goals. We set goals for ourselves. Sometimes we achieve those goals. And I say sometimes you might achieve what you thought you wanted, only to realize it's not what you really wanted. It's just what you thought you wanted based on who you thought you were. The right. identity that you created based on the condition on past conditioning, you know. And so uh, I think many times clients came to me because they, 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 they had the company, they had the money, they had the jet, they had this, they had everything. And they were like, but I'm not. I'm not living my I'm not living my purpose, or I'm not I'm not fulfilled, or I'm or I'm living someone else's life, and they weren't truly happy. Look, I say, happiness is 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 simple. It's really simple, Dave. It's not always easy, but it's really simple. Feel the truth, acknowledge the truth, feel the truth, tell the truth, speak the truth, live the truth. End of story. I think so many things that we go to temple and we pray to God about. God, help me with this. Help me with that. Help me. What we wouldn't even have to pray about because naturally it would resolve. So for me, truth is the greatest yoga. Truth is the greatest prayer. Truth is meditation. Truth, to me, truth is a profound spiritual practice because it will uh, cut away so much BS from our lives, you know. And look, you might lose people, you might lose situations, you might lose relationships, but I, I tend to come from the place of the people that you lose in your life as a result of speaking your authentic truth, living your authentic truth, probably weren't a vibrational match or truly in alignment with who you are anyway, you know? And so uh, I think there's a gr ultimately there's a great freedom in being who you are, which takes a lot of courage, which is why most of us aren't, you know? So when you're dealing with your set of clients or you know, a room full of people, yeah. but let's talk about someone who's, who's who's really successful already and you tell them all right you've got to face your truth what changes do they make in their lives like like, like what happens do they sell their companies you know do they they get divorced <laughs> like, like it, it seems like that's highly disruptive if you've built something yeah look I, I always tell people when i work with them i don't know what's going to happen to your life but let's find out and so my goal isn't to have them sell something or do something it's to help them peel away the layers so they can get in touch with who they really are you know, and so sometimes they might sell their company. Sometimes they might uh, get a divorce. You know, but they were miserable anyway. And, and sometimes they might uh, build a new company. Sometimes, but but what always happens when people, when I find when people connect to their truth, when they connect to who they really are, their authentic selves, um, the parts of themselves that they've been suppressing, is they access more joy and more aliveness. You know, and from that place of like being truthful to themselves. They're alive. They're freer within themselves, you know? And, and, and so from that place, then they're able to create their life. So I'll give you an example. I always say, look, we're, we're born free. As children, we're born at least to a degree in touch with our essence, you know, divinity. You look into a child's eyes, a child will jump on a table and sing and dance and scream and shout. It doesn't care if it's not Bruno Mars or Michael Jackson or just go and hug you. It doesn't have so much self-consciousness, but then we meet our parents and then we go through life and they're doing the best that they can do based on their conditioning. And so as children, we're born free, these, these balls of divine, infinite energy. We're, we're born into this environment where we face pain, trauma, hurt, divorce, maybe abuse, some of us more than others, emotional abandonment. Sometimes it's just a sense of just 
being neglected and it's subtle, you know. And so two things happen. We we kind of start learning all these unconscious ways to to disconnect from the pain of what's going on around us and we start developing these survival mechanisms to to not feel the pain, to shut down, disconnect, right. and we start suppressing parts of ourselves just so that we don't feel the pain of all of this stuff, you know? And as a result, we disconnect from the full range of our feeling and our emotion. Then we go into life and we start learning all sorts of ways to uh, the sense of like, who do I need to be in order to be loved by my, in my case, by my dad? And maybe, maybe those listening, maybe you were uh, loud and funny and screaming and you, your, your parent, one of your parents said, be quiet. And so you learn to shut down, you learn to disconnect. So the sense of like, who do I need to be in order to be loved? So we start developing a persona and a mask and a, and a identity, you know, a way of being uh, to, to, to avoid pain and to be loved. And that creates a certain identification of what we think is me. And we say, well, this is just who I am, you know? And, and so I think much of who we think we are is not who we really are, it's simply who we've been conditioned to be to survive. And so based on that, survival persona or pattern or identity that we become thinking this is who we are uh, we often navigate our life do relationships and set goals based on what we think we want based on this uh, conditioned limited version of what we think we are and so the more we are locked into this prison of identity of conditioning i think the less freedom we have to really see clearly who we are and what is it that we really want and, and so for me the process of working with clients is to help them acknowledge that they're conditioned uh, become aware of their conditioning and the ways in which they've become conditioned to feel the parts of themselves and the pain that they've learned to suppress over the years and to heal that to release that and then uh, as we peel those layers away feel what's really true you know what's really there and uh, and live that so that sounds uh, frankly terrifying uh, <laughs> my, my own process of doing that and, and I, I've done many of these things and, yeah. and, and I've in my 20 years of biohacking and spending a million dollars on myself it wasn't <laughs> just biology I hacked here in order to be able to do the things I do yeah. uh, and you know, to stand on a stage without you know, wanting to wet myself and things like that <laughs> and, and so I, I do know like, like, like you're yeah. basically looking at facing death uh, that's yeah. what it feels like anyway. Yeah. And yeah. when you do this, for people listening to this, like, all right, maybe I'm willing to do this. <laughs> right? Like, do you do you need a coach to do this? Do you need a, a spiritual guru? Like, 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 who do you go to to help you go through this process? Because I don't think you're going to get this just from you know watching a YouTube video. Maybe yeah, you, will. I, you know, I mean, I, I don't think so. I'm not saying it won't nudge you along. It will nudge you along. But yeah. but I do think you know having a guide. Coach, teacher, whatever, whatever, someone, because many times the eyeball can't see itself. Yeah. And, and, and many times there is a survival, egoic survival preservation sort of pattern inside of ourselves that, that is, doesn't want to, to die to parts of ourselves that yeah. have worked for us in the past. You know, there's ways of being that worked for us when, when we were five that helped us survive that we're still doing when we're 35. And yeah. so it is scary. And, and so I think having a community of people that can support you, community of friends that can support you, but also having a guide, a coach uh, who sees who you really are, sees through the condition. Because many times we think, no, this is just who I am. I am unworthy. I am my story. I am this way of being. I am shy. And it's just who we've been conditioned to be, right? And so having a coach or a guide who can see the truth of who you are and help you question yourself, help you unravel yourself, help you untangle some of these layers, but also hold a loving and safe space for you. Someone who's walked the path who can say, it's gonna be okay, you know, and here's how we move through that process. So I think have, having a guide or a coach is really helpful. I've found it can be helpful for me because one of the skills that we have when you talk about that egoic defense mechanism there is that you can come across a truth, and as soon as you come across it, the ego starts erasing the memory of it. So, so I've worked with, I've worked with clients at, at forty years of Zen, where they they are electrodes on their head, and they they come up with, okay, I, I I got this realization, and five minutes later, you ask them about it, and they don't 
have a memory of it. Like these are smart, successful people, but it's like their own body edits this out of their memory. Yeah. But if they talk about it or they write it down or they share it, it becomes, it's like a dream. <clears throat> A dream that you don't share. I can't remember that dream. But yeah. then once you once you get it out, yeah. and maybe journaling is is enough for some people. But I, the first few times I came across that, it, it, I was like, this is a really this person smarter than me, yet they don't remember what they just said, and it was profound. And it was going to like set them free, and they're going to release this trauma. Do you have a, a theory about what's going on with that, or how people can work around that ability to forget the scary stuff? To, to forget the insight you're saying? Yeah, you, well, the insight's scary. So yeah. you, 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 like the body is programmed to forget scary yeah, things. I, I, I think there is that self-preservation mechanism yeah. to keep us locked into what we are because there's a fear of if I let, if I, if I shift, if I change, yeah. then, then a part of me is dying. Right. You know, and and it is scary. I I think what, what helps me also is to to, to yes to write it down. To, that's why the community aspect is important yeah. because when you have a community that witnesses you go through that, five people, 10 people, 100, however many people, they are your mirrors that can basically reinforce and help you remember the truth of that insight, the truth of that reality. And I think one of the ways that we, we try to preserve ourselves is we isolate. You know, we mm -hmm. isolate ourselves and go into our aloneness because that's when we can do our own sneaky tactic. I think the right. ego uh, has this thing where we want to seek and 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 keep seeking and never find anything. Right. Because that just keeps the that that keeps this this sort of sense of meanness, you know, going. And so to actually find an insight and have that become reality is death. It's scary, you know. But uh, is it Rumi that said you must die before you die? Right, and uh, I think that then you will be truly free, you know. And, and so I think that's that's the process of life. In pretty much every one of the shamanic uh, practices that I've either interviewed people about or that I've, I've learned, almost all of the really deep personal development books, there's a moment where people are waking up, have to have to face death, yes. and it it feels like death anyway. But they don't usually actually die unless it's one of those weird like there's an Eskimo practice where they hold you underwater until you die and then wake you back up. Let's not go there. Huh. <laughs> so for, for the rest of these practices, uh, whether it's you know the rite of passage where you know you, you've got you know a knife and you're off alone until you get a download or whatever, um, there's that 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 facing that fear and then moving forward and that's what what sets you free. And it seems like that's increasingly difficult to do in, in the context of living in the West and all that. How can people listening to this create an opportunity, even if it creates that much terror? I mean, is, is this a, you know, go do um, ayahuasca, go do mushrooms, <laughs> uh, you know, do something really scary, extreme sports? Like, what do you recommend as a practice to help people face that level of fear? I mean, you can do some of those things. You know, for me... One thing that's just simple is to meditate on death. Interesting. Consciously, not in an ayahuasca ceremony yeah. or in an altered state because <laughs> you still lights, yeah. have to integrate it into your life. Right. And is to actually like meditate on death, to feel death, like every moment of your life. The fact is you're dying on some level, at least this, this physical body yep. is dissolving you know i know there's technology now that's growing our capacity to live years but we are dying buddha jesus yeah. bruce lee Ma muhammad ali we're all going at the, some moment the sun's going to go out at some point at some so. point <laughs> and so to actually feel it to feel like that's what's helped me is to actually feel it to breathe it i'm dying right now another breath I'm dying right now. And just to, it's not like some dramatic thing, but it's, it's a subtle embrace of the nature of this whole existence, you know, and, and, and to embrace it fully. And I think if you can't embrace death and that reality, to at least to the body, it's hard to fully embrace life. And it's hard to fully, like, to the degree you're afraid of death is a degree, I, th I found that you, you, there's a slight fear in really putting yourself on the line, on the line and living. Yeah. And so breathing, facing death, you know, having a spiritual practice, let's say like meditation, 
true meditation where it's not like a concentration practice or a visualization practice, but actually a process of, you know, going deep to that transcendental state where you are transcending yourself and dissolving yourself, you know, in meditation, I think is also a, a practice of facing death. One thing that really helped me face death when I was, uh, apart from moments of being in car accidents and literally thinking I was going to die, was being in India. I was in India for the first time. I went to a place called Varanasi. Varanasi is where, the, if you've been there, Dave, but it's by the Ganges. I'm gonna take you. I'm gonna take you one oh, day. I wanna go. And this intense, I warn you about the air quality, not the best, so to get ready. Right. Uh, <clears throat> I'll never forget going there. The, the, the Hindus believe it, it's so sacred at this part of the Ganges that when they die, they want to get thrown into this part of the Ganges because right. they won't have to take rebirth. That's how sacred it is. And so there's a part of the Ganges where uh, for about 3,500 years, there has been unbroken fire, an unbroken ceremony, right. and they burn their bodies. And one thing that really impacted me in facing death was, was going there and seeing like six bodies on wood pyres burning. And it takes about two to three hours for an entire human body to burn. But I'll never forget, I would recommend this for everyone. Like if you want to face death, go watch your body burning, sure. right? I remember seeing maybe five, five to 10 feet away, seeing this body burning from the beginning to the end. And there was this head crackling on fire, the brain sputtering in front of me. Wow, that's And intense. the face and the, and, the, and the shoulders and the hands and the feet and all the way down to the toes, everything burning. And it was this profound, experience of realizing I'm a body, that's a body, but that body's not moving. And am I just this body? Can I just be this body? Am I this body, this body that we're so identified with and freaked right. out by and afraid that this is gonna die and, and oh my God, this thing. And so it really opened up the question in observing this body dying. Who am I really? Like really, I know I'm going to die, but who is, who am I that I'm saying I'm going to die? And I think when you really, when I, when you, if you really start questioning who am I really and who is it that's going to die, we're afraid of death because we think we are just this physical body. We think we're so identified with this physical form. We're so identified with the collection of memories of what we think ourselves to be. But if I said to you, you know, if I said to someone, where do you exist? I mean, most people tend to point to like, well, I guess here, here, here. But if we're just, we can't just be this physical thing. And also, the physical thing doesn't really exist. Like as we're speaking right now, you're shedding cells, you're building exactly. new cells. We're, we're more like a current in a river, but not an actual physical thing. And it, it's, kind of, it's kind of scary from a Western perspective to think about it. Yeah. Uh, but it, what you're saying makes sense. And I, I came, I don't know, 10 plus years ago, I've done all sorts of advanced yoga and read about reincarnation and things like that. I'm not a thousand percent convinced that we, that we reincarnate, but I think it's pretty likely. Yeah. But even if that's not true, I chose to build that into my nervous system's thinking because fear <laughs> of death goes away a lot. Like, you know what, when I die, as long as I can make my body believe, I'll get a do-over later. Yeah. <laughs> and then a lot, of the, a lot of the fear and stress can just go away. So I'm willing to rationally go, that may all be complete and utter bullshit, yes. but adopting that belief system at least at the irrational parts of my mind sure makes dealing with life-threatening situations a lot less yeah. of a of a fearful thing knowing full well that yeah i could be i could die and it could be over i think that's unlikely but hey it might happen yeah. but still as long as i just let enough of me believe that other thing uh, the i might die tomorrow we all might die tomorrow but none of us know when the moment's coming yeah and we don't want to we don't want to face that and and so all right you're sitting across from a billionaire or you know, some A-list celebrity person. You're telling them you're going to die and you're afraid of it. Like, do they just tell you to go screw yourself? Like, like, I, like, how honestly, do they respond to that? Honestly, I, t I, I tend not to just say that. Okay. Uh, that's usually not the first conversation. Sure. You know, usually I, I work with them and I explore and, they, okay. and, and I take them through some processes that just kind of give them awareness of their entire conditioning and how they've come together, their makeup. I give them insight into seeing who they are and how they've become, uh, how they've become what they've become and, and how that's limiting them. And they start having insights and awarenesses themselves. And, and once, once people see how their conditioning is limiting them, usually they're open to uh, going beyond it. You know, usually they're open to going. And, 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 and our conditioning is not who we are. You know, it's just 
our conditioning. So it's definitely I believe all these things because I've, I've lived this that that's been the path that I've I've walked through but I haven't uh, I haven't seen bodies burn uh, I think the the closest I came to that was in Tibet uh, where it's the, the headwaters of the Indus and Ganges around Mount Kailash you see these incredibly large black birds they're either crows or ravens but they're like way bigger than they have any right to be because there's no food there. Like, like this is hundreds or thousands of miles of, of very sparse vegetation. Like there's nothing. Yeah. But these birds are just like fat and big. And the reason for that is that the Tibetan sky burial is still practiced there. And so when you die, they cut you up into pieces and feed you to the birds. <clears throat> wow. Uh, and, you know, this is a way when you, you, you won't compost if they bury you in the soil because there's, there's no life in the soil that way and there's no fuel to burn you because they take all the yak dung. So like, what else are you going to do? Feed the birds, right? And so you see these huge, just like muscular things and all those are basically signs of death, yes. right? But they're not omens of death. They're just yes. like, like life returning to life. Yes. And I remember thinking that and experiencing that going like, that's, uh, that's incredible. In fact, if I, had a, if I had a choice of ways to go when I'm dead, I think a Tibetan sky burial is pretty awesome. Yeah. But it might be kind of hard to yeah. hard to do that. I know the birds would be very healthy because I'm so healthy, right? So it'd be like a low <laughs> exactly. toxin, bulletproof <laughs> bird. I'm kidding. But uh, I, I did experience that. And, and certainly a lot of the Tibetan things I was learning were all about death. Yeah. Right? And uh, you actually take people through something called a liberation experience in India. Yes. And you actually take them to this part of India yeah. where they do that. So you just get a group of people and sort of, you know, go to these, these sacred spots? Like, how does that work? Uh, the liberation experience came about out of my own journey. Uh, I first went to India, as I was sharing, and basically I had an experience on the back of a train uh, in the poorest section in India, sardine can situation with this woman who was like, if you sold everything she had, her net worth is $10. The head of her child, one of her children, is hanging off of the train. I thought, if this kid fell out, nobody would even notice. And my heart broke feeling the suffering of humanity. And I thought, how do we live in a world where we can send people to the moon and these, you know, uh, technology and internet and iPhones, but we can't feed, the, how can we not feed a child? This is crazy. So my heart broke in feeling the suffering. And then I looked at this woman an hour later and looked into her eyes. And I felt like what was living me was living her. There was no separation. There was just oneness. And I had this vision, like, what would it be like to take a, uh, world leaders on this trip, a trip to India where they're actually having this experience. George Bush, uh, Bill Clinton, Oprah, you know, Sergey Brin. You, know, you haven't brought them on your- I have uh, not, I, I have not, which is why <laughs> wow. I can talk about, which is why I can say those names. Right, but, right. but I've taken some pretty heavy duty people. Okay. And right, I thought, right. what would it be like as a result of certain people who are in leadership positions transforming? Yeah. And as a result of their own transformation, awakening, awareness, connectivity, how would they use their resources and platforms to impact? society. Yeah. Then I forgot about it, built my coaching business, became known as a, as a transformational coach. 2006, I had a download, a vision that said, create that journey. It's not a, it wasn't a group journey, Dave, it was a one-on-one -on -one journey. Basically, I take away your money, take away your passport, you have a backpack, a pair of clothes, you're stuck with me for 12 to 14 days, you have no idea where you're going, uh, I make you sign your will in case you don't come back. You write letters to everyone in your life in case you don't come back. Make you face death and I take you <laughs> That's pretty intense. for 12 to 14 days through the bowels of India. But really what I'm doing is not a tour. I'm really what I'm doing is I'm creating a, an inner journey that really forces you to, to face your fears. I mean, we often think we're free, but the moment we take away someone's cell phone and someone's you know, makeup and someone's clothes and someone's status, it's like, who the hell are we really? And so oh, yeah. it's, a, it's a deep dive process that was a one-on-one -on -one journey in, in probably seven years. I don't do them anymore. Seven years, I did about 19 journeys. Wow. That were really special and amazing and deep and, I mean, life-changing. And so that became known as the liberation experience, the one-on-one -on -one journeys. And they, they, they were deep, you know. But it was really a journey of, of, uh, of death and freedom because we think we're free, you know. We think we're free, but the moment, but so often our freedom is dependent on all these things outside, this being a certain way, you know, my wife being a certain way, life being a certain way, the gov government being a certain way. And so I think when our freedom is so dependent on these things, it's like how do you find an inner source of freedom within yourself that isn't dependent on or less dependent on things outside? And so uh, I would put people in situations and create situations that really kind of push people's buttons and force them to find a, an inner freedom. 
Do the the tools that you work with, including liberation experience type things, do they work the same way for men and women? Yes. And regards to liberation experience, which is in India, no. Yeah, there's a... Because because what I do with men in India, what I used to do with men in India, was I think men grow grow more, at least the masculine, grows more through challenge mm-hmm. and, and pushing them to the edge. And just when, when, when the masculine thinks, I'm gonna die, I can't go beyond that, like now we start and we go beyond that, that threshold. So I think men grow, grow more through the challenge. Uh, and with women, it was very different. I, I kind of made a mistake of sort of trying to push the same way and it completely backfired. And so, on my first journey, really what I had to do with the feminine was actually create a space for her, to, for, the, for, for this woman to actually uh, feel so safe, to be able to let go of all the ways she typically has to hold on to, to her control, and you could say almost like masculine edge right. in life, in culture, that really allowed her to let go. And in that letting go, I found that uh, the women I work with were actually able to just uh, unravel more. And so with, with men, I was much more direct mm-hmm. and in your face and intense. And with women, that didn't work. So I, I would have to kind of like go around the back door and the side door. And it was a totally different kind of process, you know, required a lot more presence, a lot more sensitivity, um, a lot more connectivity. And it was a much more indirect, non-linear process. You know? but, but it still resulted in you know, speaking your own truth, waking up to your own truth. The result was the but same. But the path was a little different yeah, to get there. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, I think it's important for women to honor the, the, their own unique process. Because you know? I think right. a lot of women try to, 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 to force themselves into masculine sort of modes of transformation. And it's great. I think everyone should do whatever they want. But I found that path is often different. It, it feels like a lot of the modern personal development stuff tends to be a little bit more like male oriented, a little Much bit more, more masculine. Yang. Much and more, yeah. That's why I like hanging out with, with you. And of course, here we are two guys talking about how women can do personal development. Like, you know, neither of us, at least in this life, is, is a woman. Uh, but there are uh, emerging leaders around women's personal development. And yeah. some of them are men working with women, some of them are women, some women work yeah. with men. It, it doesn't, it, it's not just cut down by gender, but. Yeah. It feels like there's a different path, and there there's is. there's common truths yeah. to all of humanity, but the way to access them might be different based on you that. You know, if you look at a lot of the old uh, spiritual practices that were passed down through the, the yogis, and there were meditative techniques that were created by men, that was everything was about unmoving consciousness, stillness in meditation, you don't move. And that's a very masculine path, and I think uh, for the feminine, the feminine is the masculine is sort of this sort of unmoving depth of consciousness. The feminine is life itself, mm-hmm. the weather, the movement. It's movement. She is movement. She is dance, movement. And so I think uh, the feminine path can be a lot more, doesn't mean men couldn't you know, access that, but I think the feminine path is also a lot more embodied. You know, through the body, through the movement, through the body, accessing the body and allowing yeah. the body, realizing that, that, that honoring the body and the world as the body, your body as part of the divine is equally valid than sitting in a cave and just not moving. Yeah, my, my experience has been that women are actually much better biohackers than men. Interesting. Because a, a guy like me, well, I'm going to get the data. Right? So I'm going to think my way through all this and all this. And a woman will be like, you know, that doesn't feel good. Feel <laughs> because good. the more embodied, and of course this is being stereotypical because, you know, some yes, guys are embodied yeah, and some women have no idea what's going on in their body. But if you're like, you know, flipping a coin and playing the odds, um, I, I don't yeah. know why that is. You know, I could hypothesize, but I just experienced that over and over. It's like, oh, that's not working for me. Yeah. Right. And for me, I'd be like, well, I did it for two years before, you know, I finally hit a wall. And I was like, no, this hasn't been working me working for me for two years. I wish I would have figured that out. Yeah. And my own path has been, I can actually listen to my body way more than I could before. Right. But it, it feels like there's there's something to what you're saying yeah. around that. Well, we're coming up on, on the end of the show. I feel like we could talk for another two hours. But I have a question for you. Sure. Now, You've you've lived a very unusual life, and so you'll probably have a cool answer for this. But if someone came to you tomorrow 
and said, look, based on everything that you know, everything you've learned, mm. I'm looking for some advice. Mm. I want to perform better as a human being. Tell me the three most important pieces of advice you have for me. What are they? Number one, we kind of touched on it. Face your death. Face death. You are going to die. I don't care who you are. We are all going to die. So face it. Embrace it. Make death your friend. Because if you hold death close, uh, hopefully, not in a morbid way, but I think it will inspire you to realize you don't have time to waste. You don't have time to mess around. You, know, you don't have time to not follow your deepest truth that every moment that is wasted is a moment you can't get back. You know, at the end of life, wherever we go, you can't go to God and say, please give me a refund. And so I'd invite each person to face their death. For me, that has been a huge motivation to just live fully and optimally. So that's one. The other thing is surrender. The reason I say that, you ask the question of, you know, what was it being, being um, was it, how did you phrase your question? Uh, you want to perform better perform. as a human being, but not, not, not at your job, but just yeah. at being human. So, so surrender, because I think when you really surrender yourself to life and trust and get yourself out of the way, you allow yourself to catch the flow of life that's already happening. I think life has a rhythm and life has a, has a flow. There's an intelligence, the same intelligence that's breathing me is breathing you. The same life force is breathing seven billion people, functioning all of existence. The same intelligence is functioning the sun, the stars, like this whole amazing planet. And so I think the more we can surrender to that and get ourselves out of the way, the more we catch a flow. And I think uh, life unfolds in ways that we cannot imagine. And so I think we're able to perform better as human beings, you know, that way. I'm gonna go back to the simple thing, but most important is, is, is tell the radical truth, feel the radical truth. The degree of aliveness you feel in life is in direct proportion to your willingness to live and tell the truth. And the less withholds you have, the less lies you are carrying, uh, the more alive you will be. And I think the less you are suppressing, the more alive you are, the more alive you are, the better you'll perform. And so uh, live the truth. You know, to me, that is freedom. And when you're free, I mean, you're going you're gonna to flow. You're going to perform. So and so face death. Face death. Surrender. Surrender. And speak the truth, speak tell the, the truth, truth, live the truth. You know? Beautiful. And I, and, I, and I look at people like, you know, I'm inspired by people like Gandhi and Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King. And people say, oh, surrender, that sounds so... All of these people, the great ones, were great, truly great. And I think what they achieved, they could not have achieved with just their own human egoic mind. They surrendered to something that was way bigger than themselves and they plugged into that stream of infinite energy and that intelligence of life is what used them it, it, it lived through them and so i think when we surrender we open ourselves to not just asking ourselves well what do i want but really what does life want to express through me and when we allow that that's when i think magic happens in life Beautiful, uh, profound answer, uh, which I would expect given all the cool things that you've lived and done and, and discovered. Could where can people find out more? Your book is "You Are the One." Is there a, the one. a website or people where you teach people and things like Couple that? Couple of things. Uh, if people want to find out more about the book. They can go to Amazon or obviously uh, have a website, youarethonebook.com, where they can get some free gifts. My main website is uh, cootblackson.com. Uh, find out about my events there. Also, if anyone's inspired to maybe take a deeper dive, uh, boundlessblissbali.com, where I do uh, my deep dive event twice a year in Bali. Beautiful. It's been a pleasure having you on the show and getting to know you. Thanks again. Appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks for having me. If you like today's episode, you know what to do. Head on over to Amazon and pick up a copy of Coot's book. Uh, it's a, a fun and inspiring read. We didn't talk anything about ketosis. Uh, we didn't talk anything about uh, eating bulletproof bars or any of that other stuff, although I have it on good authority that could, may actually do that. However, that doesn't really matter because read the book and face your own death and do the deep, heavy-duty stuff because my experience has been that if you get your biology working at least halfway, it's a lot easier to do the hard stuff that we just talked about here. When I was a fat young, young guy, 
with a brain that didn't work very well, I didn't have the energy to face death, <laughs> much less to do half the things I wanted to do. So for me, the path of my own personal growth uh, has has started with biology, which is why some of my books start like that. But even if you're not where you want to be from a health perspective, reading about the stuff that Coot writes about, it can inspire you uh, on multiple fronts. And your job is to build up your energy so that you can do more of the things that you want to do. And that energy that you you liberate, that you free up, can go into the kind of work that we just discussed on the show. So I hope it was of service to you. I hope you enjoyed it. If you if you like the show, leave a review on iTunes. Go to bulletproof.com slash iTunes. We'll take you there. And then after you read Kud's book, go to Amazon and leave a review for the book so people can actually say, oh, this is worth my time to read. That is, if you find it's worth your time to read, I'm pretty sure you will. Have an awesome day. A Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.